down Are they gonna bail you out Or just run you around They said you should have a house The American way Dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today, while you're listening to this, if you're listening to it soon after it was published anyway, you're listening to this show, I'm actually recording this on a Tuesday, but it is Friday, uh, the 20th, and it is episode 497, and right now, I'm somewhere in a big old airplane between Dallas and Atlanta, Georgia, most likely on my way eventually to a little island called Sanibel off the Gulf Coast of Florida for a real vacation this time. Um, but you're getting a show. You'll get a show Monday. Tuesday and Wednesday, I'm not sure of yet at the time of this recording. Probably Tuesday, probably not Wednesday next week. But you might think this guy's taking a lot of vacations. The last vacation was kind of a working vacation, uh, working in, in the fact that it was as a thing for the moderators on the forum that I felt like I needed to go to and support those guys because they were so good to me. This time I'm going to lay my butt on the beach, drink pina coladas, and go fishing. And uh, even that said, I try to always leave a show behind or two or three for you when I go away so that you don't do without because you guys are important to me and I want you to know that. Um, I'm going to get a unique opportunity to talk about something that will tell you how important I think you are to me with our last call today because it is a Friday. That means we're doing call-in Friday and these are your calls and questions and comments and things from uh, you guys all over the country dialed into 866-65-THINK. Uh, I've, I had a big backlog after you guys helped me out in a, in a low point, and uh, I'm working off that backlog pretty good. So if you call in now, it probably won't be like the next week, maybe in the week after, but probably within the next three weeks, you're looking at having your question on the air as long as it fits in with the show uh, and we don't have any audio quality. Sometimes, guys, you, you call in and it's like really a good question, but I, I can't do it because uh, cell phones and people call with their windows down in their cars or something like that. I uh, try to clean them up as best I can, but sometimes I can't. So do call in a show. Uh, before we get into today's show, though, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. First item, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. Uh, they do a lot to help take care of you and make sure that I'm able to deliver this show even when I'm laying on a beach. Uh, sponsor of the day number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. All the things that you need to live that tactical lifestyle from Sawtooth Tactical, from things like uh, Magpul magazines to uh, Maxpedition bags and everything else in between. Check them out. Remember, mention that you found out about Sawtooth Tactical on the Survival Podcast, and they usually throw in a free little goodie for you, something like a hank of uh, 550 Paracord or something along those lines. Next up today is ready-made resources. Hey, what more can you add? 
ask that a company give their, their themselves a name that tells you what they are and what they do. Ready-Made Resources has all the resources you need for your prepping. Uh, everything from supplies and uh, things to store your food to, to storable food to stuff for the hunting and the tactical and everything else. Check out Ready-Made Resources. Uh, next up today, uh, make sure you connect to us by all our social media things. Our forum is great. Guys, join the forum. Come on, man. Hook up with us on the forum. Uh, there's some great people in there. The relationships you can form in that forum. I'll tell you what. When I went to meet with our moderators for our little mod get-together. Uh, we did keep on the radar because it was just for moderators. I watched people walk in to, uh, to see each other that had never actually seen each other face-to-face -face before. Big, strong guys carrying guns. You know the first thing they did when they saw each other? They hugged. Seriously, man. That's the kind of relationships that can be formed uh, when you really have common interests and common ideals, and we need that. We'll, you'll hear more about why we need that later today. Um, You know, make sure you connect with us also on Facebook, uh, YouTube, and Twitter. I know I said I was going to bring back a lot of YouTube footage from the trip that I took up to see the moderators. But it was like 112 degrees out, and um, I don't look good on camera in 112 degrees. I'll leave it at that. So we'll be really beefing that stuff up in September when the nicer weather gets here. i got a lot of projects planned. Um, make sure you join our Facebook fan page. Like it for us. I'm still trying to make sure. We're going to beat Brian Black at ITS. We took a commanding lead already, but... Uh, Your help in making sure that that lead is huge by the time it's over with. We'll uh, teach that guy to go throwing bets out at me again, huh? So help me out with that. Consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members you support the show at 20 cents an episode. And with that, let's go ahead and take the first call. Got about 11 of them lined up today. Some really great ones, some really interesting ones, and some that are just here to help you. I mean, I don't have a huge comment on some of these calls. They're just really good pieces of advice that I wanted the audience to be able to share with each other. So we'll go ahead and take that first call. Hi, Jack. This is uh, Mark from New Hampshire. Quickly becoming a huge fan. Turned on to you just a few months ago. I um, just had a couple questions about um, food storage. What is your preferred method For storing meat long term, and also for uh, storing medication, how do you go about getting the medication you need? Because a lot of times with uh, today's medical staff and doctors, they just don't prescribe more than what you need on a temporary basis. So I just want to know how you go about getting the you know antibiotics you need to keep in your store. Again, thank you, and uh, look forward to hearing from you. Thanks. All right, good question on storing meat. My preference for methods of storing meat in order. Number one, biltong. Number two, jerky. Number three, canned. Number four, smoked slash cured, as in uh, smoked meat uh, or going to a curing level, like curing something like a ham, uh, kind of combining those two as a single method. Uh, my last method uh, would probably be freezing. Uh, Method I use the most, freezing, because it's the most convenient and allows me to eat the meat as though it was fresh. But for storage purposes, I find biltong superior to all other things. Won't say too much on biltong right now because I have another question on it in just a bit. Um, but I always place freezing as my least preferential method for long-term storage because it's grid-dependent. It's electricity-dependent. So there you go on the meat. On the, the medication, it's one of these things I really want my wife to get comfortable with maybe getting on the air with me one day because I leave the majority of decisions about medicine and things with them and things like that to her because she's a nurse and has been for 24 years. So in a team environment, if someone is an absolute expert at something, uh, you 
tend to allow them to be the ones that take care of that aspect. Here's the basics, though, of how I view this. If I go to the doctor, which is a very, very rare occurrence, but if I go to the doctor and he says, hey, I'm going to give you some pain medication for where you wrenched your back or whatever, and I feel like I don't really need that, I'm like, oh, okay. And uh, I'll often say, is there a refill on that? I never ask for one. Usually I'll say, is there a refill on it? And a lot of times I'll go, you know, I'll, I'll throw a refill on there, but don't use it unless you need it. Right? I take it home. And as soon as the refill's available, like the number of days it took me to take them is, is gone, I get the refill, I vacuum seal them, I put them away. I keep the prescription with them. Okay? Um, that way I'm not violating any laws, at least uh, I'm covering my ass, so to speak. Because if I end up in a situation where somebody is in a lot of pain, it's hard to get a hold of something like a pain pill. Antibiotics, same deal, exact same way. Um, I really get on doctors for over-prescribing antibiotics and often feel that they're not necessary. So if they're ever given at a time when I don't feel they're necessary, I don't take them. And uh, if we do take them, we always take the complete course because that's important. That's a proper use of antibiotics. But um, if we have you know, a runny nose and a cold and a doctor prescribes an antibiotic, then we'll take it. You have to be careful with antibiotics because there are a few types of antibiotics. I can't tell you by name. I believe it's stuff, I'm not even going to say, I think it might be the, the tetracycline family. I'm not sure, though. You need to check on this. That there's some antibiotics that actually can become harmful if they're stored for too long. And there's others that simply become less effective. Most things other than an antibiotic, a medication doesn't become dangerous, it simply becomes ineffective. The things that make anything store longer, low temperature, low humidity, low oxygen. So that's how you want to store anything, low temperature, low humidity, low oxygen, for any medication you can get. You st to, to, to effectively store up medication, you start to bridge some boundaries that go into the world of could be, might be, almost are, definitely, probably, maybe illegal, right? I can't say what exactly to do or what exactly to say because then I'm advocating illegal behavior. All I can say is you have to analyze your own uh, risk tolerances and the things that you think you may need. Maybe you have an enlightened doctor that would be okay with uh, making some allowances for you to take some things that are generally prescription and put them aside. Anything that's generally a maintenance medication, like a cholesterol-lowering drug, which I think most are you know, not necessary, but for some people they are needed. I think they're over-prescribed, but for those that need them, or diabetics with insulin, or anything that is a regularly scheduled medication, most of the time there's no problem at all, it's, except other than expense, to laying up 60 days or more of a medication like that. Doctors are happy to accommodate you with that because it's a required dosage. It's the acute things like pain pills, antibiotics, and things like that. Um, it's also a very good idea for you to get a very good understanding of herbal medications and antibiotic properties of herbals. And um, Dr. Kyle Christensen has a first aid book that I can't remember the name of off the top of my head. It's on my bookshelf, but I don't see it looking over my shoulder. Uh, but it's basically like an herbal first aid book. And uh, I'll put a link in today's show notes to that for you. It's an outstanding one as a starting block. Um, I also am a big fan of a book called The Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook. 
And I basically, if I can buy a book on herbs, I, I take a look at it. If it has any information that I don't already know, I buy it and throw it on uh, the uh, bookshelf because we may have to rely on those things someday. And a lot of things that we would need an antibiotic for are external wounds with infection. And there's a lot of ways that you can use herbals to make a drawing poultice uh, that is just as effective as or more effective than an internal antibiotic. For some things, nothing else will do. Right, so you got to balance that one with what you have available to you, what your risk tolerances are, and what you're willing to do at the edges of law. That's the best I can do on that one for you. Let's go ahead and uh, take another question. Jack, uh, my name's Ryan, and I want to first thank you for uh, taking my call uh, a couple of weeks ago about our uh, our little community and those suggestions. The uh, the the teams are coming together great and. Uh, Anyway, on to my question. Uh, a few years ago, I heard a rumor about Jefferson State may actually become a reality in the near future, and I was just listening to one of your uh, call-in shows, and a gentleman was talking about uh, the uh, possibility of no property taxes and things such as that. I was wondering if you thought that uh, the possibility of Jefferson State could be a... Uh, an alternative to moving out to Idaho and it being the uh, the survivalist paradise. Anyway, just wanted to pick your brain on that. Thank you, and uh, have a nice day. Well, there's something I haven't heard in a long time, man. Uh, thanks for bringing that up, and for nothing else to let the audience know about Jefferson State. I, I bet you that right now there's probably 50% to 70% of the audience out there going, what the heck, they're Google, click, 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 Googling if they're at work, Jefferson State, and they're finding a college and having to dig through this to figure out what this is. What he's actually referring to is actually officially known as the State of Jefferson. And it was originally proposed, I believe, back in the 40s, around like the right around the beginning of World War II or something like that. And it's a proposed area that's basically a big piece of northern California and southern Oregon that wants to secede. And uh, at least initially, I've read some things recently that said they may secede as their own little sovereign nation. The initial concept was not secession from the Union, secession from California and Oregon. In other words, like a lot of people, I, the reason I really want to talk about this, I think a lot of people, I just traded some emails with people in Illinois that feel this way, two different guys, same exact feeling that feel that the people that control your state don't have your best interest in heart. That the huge population centers, and this is true in so many states, uh, the, the, the people in a place like Philadelphia that really have so much control due to the population and their number of state representatives and how much power they influence in presidential elections and how much power they influence in senatorial and, and congressional elections, don't have the same goals and don't have the best interest in heart of the guy in Schuylkill County mining coal. The guy in Northern California that works his ass off uh, in, in some kind of a job that's it's really brute labor work and he's out there on a farm or working as a lumberjack or doing whatever it is he does or construction worker, you know, feels that the person in Sacramento or Los Angeles has no freaking clue what's really important to him, and he feels like he has no control over his state. Same with Southern Oregon in the country versus a place like Portland full of hippies, right? And there's this disconnect. And a lot of states, I think, with one or two big cities feel like, hey, these one or two big cities 
are deeply disconnected from the real people of this state. Hell, we don't even want to be associated with this anymore. So the concept of the state of Jefferson was that these two pieces of these two states would create their own state called the state of Jefferson. So there would be Jefferson, just like Texas, right, and become part of the Union. It might happen. I haven't heard anything like that. I think this is rife with, you know, your... This is hard. In some ways, it seems like, well, it should be easier than seceding from the Union, because I'm not leaving the country, I'm leaving the state. And uh, in some ways, it seems like it should be easier, but it actually it's harder. Here's why. State and federal authority both oppose you. In other words, you have to deal with the constitutionality of seceding from the state of California, and then you have a federal authority that says, well, maybe we don't want you in the Union as your own state, because the federal government, uh, with ratification from the other states, or would approve the entry of a state into the Union. So you don't just decide you're now going to be, if you know, we throw. let's say we did it in Texas, in West Texas. And actually, the Texas Panhandle had a movement, I think in the 1800s, that was also called the Jefferson State Movement, uh, named, of course, after our, our second president, Thomas Jefferson, where they wanted to do the same thing. So So West Texas stops being Texas and becomes West Texas, like a West Virginia analog. Well, you know, Austin is going to oppose that, uh, and so is the United States federal government. And both of them, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be able to do this, but have a say in the process, including, no, we're not going to let that happen. So for this to work, the organizers behind it have to get more than just the people that are there wanting it. They have to put together a proposed process that's actually difficult. Uh, an example would be an amendment to the United States Constitution. It's quite difficult. It, it can't just be done because a lot of people want it. There's a process. And because it's difficult, when the process is honored, the amendment has to be honored. And that's the way our founders set it up. So if you're going to get something like a secession movement going, especially something this complex, you're going to have to do that. It's interesting, though, and I think that organizing it is maybe more important than actually doing it. Consider when you have a kid that's acting an ass in your house and you want him to stop acting an ass, right? Let's say he's a young young man now, 16, 17, he has a car. And you say, you know what, if you don't stop acting an ass and start doing your homework or whatever the issue is, I'm going to take the car keys away from you, right? Now, the reality is, as a parent, I know this. Once you have a teen driving, you don't want to take the car keys away from him. When they drive, it solves a lot of your issues. You don't have to take them anywhere. You don't have to pick them up. And if you need something, you can send them to go get it. So the last thing you really, and they go off and do things and give you some freedom and get out of your hair. So the last thing you really want to do is take that young man or young lady's keys away, and you're probably going to do everything you can to not get that far. It doesn't mean you don't put it on the table. And I think secession needs to go back on the table. Because I don't, I, th I feel like what's happened with people that have a differing opinion inside a state or a federal government now, it's like a big feedback loop. The louder one or two of us try to talk to be heard, the greater they turn up the amp. And it's just like when you get too close to a microphone and you get that, and we can't be heard. That's where we're at. And maybe we need something to break that. Maybe that's what it is. Interesting idea. If nothing else, I bet you a lot of you just learned something. You never even knew that this was a movement that existed. And it had some real teeth behind it back in either, it was either the 30s or the 40s. I'll see if I can find some stuff to link to you from the show notes. But check out and read about the uh, state of Jefferson and the Jefferson State Movement. Let's go ahead and take uh, Derek, another my question. Name is Josh. I'm a, uh, in the Army serving in Iraq right now. I'm calling in response to uh, the question about. Uh, drinking pool water on show 480. Um, my specialty is water treatment. Um, most 
you're probably not going to be able to find a hiking filter that will purify that water. And uh, the best chance for dechlorinating it is a commercial dechlorinator, uh, which you can buy at um, pet stores for use in fish tanks. Um, so, yeah, look into that if anyone's actually interested in doing that. Thanks. Bye. Number one, Josh, thank you for your service. Stay safe, brother. Come home alive and come home whole, man. We want you back here, and we want you back here in one piece, and we want you to uh, know that despite some of the nonsense that goes out there in our government, that the people of this nation, the real people, your brothers and sisters support you, and we honor you, and we respect you for your service. Thank you, man. Thank you a lot. Um, on the uh, the pool thing, hey, who better to ask than an expert? And it, um, Josh's job in the military is an underrated one. Uh, Josh and, and people like him are providers of life uh, on, on deployments into, into rough areas. When we were in Honduras, um, there was a small group of guys that ran the water purification system, and they made sure that the other 600 of us were able to have clean showers that were safe and drinking water and water to cook with. And it's a it's a trade and a profession in the military that I think most people that have never been in the military, and even a lot of people that have been in the military, if you've ever deployed somewhere where you've had to depend on this, you may not appreciate how important it is. So, again, Josh, thank you, man. Um, all the dechlorination, that, that's a great idea and one I never thought of. I guess one issue would be if you're in a place where um, <clears throat> you're without water and you're relying on a swimming pool for it, you're going to have to have some kind of backup power because those dechlorination systems for fish tanks, as far as I know, they run on electricity. So odds are if you're long duration without water, um, unless it's, uh, you know, yeah, I never thought of that, but uh, we're not talking about major shit at the fan, you know, wholesale failure, the grid type thing. But uh, recently uh, there were some people that were out water for a long period of time just because of heat and the ground moving. There was a place called Clinton, Arkansas. Those folks went like five days with no water, and then when the water came back on, they had a boil advisory for like five more, and then out near Weatherford, Texas, there was that, that same thing went on about the same time, so interesting idea, good good suggestion, Josh, and one I would have absolutely never thought of, man, so that's cool, um, but remember, there is always the easy way to dechlorinate, chlorine is, is, is in its natural state a gas, and when water is heated, uh, it evaporates, and If you take a bucket of chlorinated water and leave it sit for a couple days, it dechlorinates on its own. So the only thing that's needed is time, and heat accelerates the time. So we can always dechlorinate water, but building a fire may not always be possible, and boiling may not always be possible. So really great suggestion. And again, brother, thanks for your service, man. And uh, come home safe, come home whole, man. And with that, let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. Uh, Sam here in... South Florida. I'm new to the podcast, and I really appreciate what you're doing. Um, just getting caught up because I am new, and I came across a comment um, about a electric sewer systems. And um, being in South Florida, having lived through Hurricane Wilma, we did have a problem with that. Um, was one of the major problems being without power here for about two weeks, and. Uh, Toilets were backing up all over the place, as you can imagine. Florida being a flat state, you definitely need electric uh, pumps in the sewers in order to keep stuff moving. Um, another issue I wanted to bring up, it's a free solution to saving YouTube videos. It's a 
website called SaveTube.com. And another free solution would be to download RealPlayer. It has a browser plug-in that you can download. It immediately plugs into Chrome, Internet Explorer, or Firefox. I'm not too sure about Safari, so Apple users, I'm sorry. But um, two free solutions to saving YouTube videos on your hard drive. Hope that helps. Thanks for the podcast. Have a good one. Well, um, there's a famous phrase that springs to mind uh, after hearing that. It it really does happen. Uh, we had a caller, the, the, this guy was talking about a caller that called in a few weeks ago that basically said, I think it was in California, that they had talked to somebody at the city and said that, hey, their pumps to move the sewage throughout the area uh, for sewer ran on electricity, and during a power outage, you could have sewers backing up. And here we he, we have a case where it you know it, it it clearly does happen and it has happened and um, it, what an unfortunate turn of events right to have your toilet backing up and it opens up a whole new world of what we have to be prepared for um, anywhere where you're not being rely you know relying on on uh, primarily gravity fed sewer systems you're going to have a situation where you, you, you this is two problems one. Your toilet backs up too, even if you're not the one doing it, right? So even if you've accepted the fact that, hey, you're going to be like a bear going in the woods now or what have you and using chemical toilets or some type of external latrine or something like that, um, once they start to back, they can back up everywhere, including your house. And you could have sewage from other people backing up into your home. And doing things like, you know, one of the things that we've, we did, um, repeatedly when we were without um, water in a couple different situations is use a bucket of pool water to flush the toilet. And as long as you don't have a problem with your drainage system, that's fine. But if everybody starts doing it and there is no place for stuff to go and you know how people are, they won't listen. And even when it starts happening, they'll keep doing it as long as it goes down a little bit eventually and you end up with sewers backed up everywhere. So one thing we may really need to have is a plan to how to get, how do we get rid of this stuff, you know? I mean, some of us in some areas might be looking at, like, uh, a battery-operated pump and a hose and be pumping this crap out the window. Now, I know that's disgusting, and I know that's gross, and I know that we certainly don't want it outside of our house, and we don't want to be doing things like that, you know, pumping sewage out of our house, but it's damn well better off outside on the ground than it is in on the floor of our homes. And uh, that sounds like the situation that could be set up that we could be getting into It's something I've never really explored. It puts an entire new dynamic on a major nationwide shit hit the fan. Um, not just the electricity being down, but having uh, sewage backups, uh, large numbers of them uh, all over the country, and the disease potential that creates. That's huge. As far as the YouTube tools, hey, guys, you, you heard it yourself. If you want to rewind and listen to what those tools are and go try them out, you can do it. I've never used any of them, but uh, coming from a listener, I, I assume that they're probably pretty safe and, you know, spyware-free and things like that. And uh, it's not what I use, but I have kind of specialized needs. When I'm stripping YouTube videos, I'm, you know, converting them into, you know, raw audio files and things like that. So I paid a little bit of money for my tool. But sounds like two great tools to, uh, to pull videos down to your hard drive and not need an Internet connection to watch YouTube videos. So thanks for that. And let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, this is Jack, Helena, Alabama. You, I was just listening to your show about making built on. Uh, everything made pretty good sense. Uh, 
I gather it takes about a week or so for it to get dry, and I'm sure it varies according to the humidity. Uh, after it dries out, uh, what do you typically do to store it? Do you just leave it hanging? Do you wrap it up? Can you wrap it up, uh, say, store it in buckets or what have you? Just curious. I appreciate it. I enjoy the show. Thank you. Okay, good question. I have kind of mentioned it before, and I've talked about Biltong, but uh, definitely happy to expand on it for you. Uh, real quick on the Biltong process for po people that maybe have not heard of Biltong before. It's a lot like jerky, sort of, in kind of roundabout way. Biltong is a process of making a dry cured, it's almost like a dry pickling is what it really is. Basic recipe, take thick cuts of lean meat, as little to no fat as possible on them, because the fat comes out really nasty, like candle wax. And uh, you take that meat and you coat it with salt and black pepper and coriander, and you let it sit overnight in a refrigerator or, you know, just out, honestly, you could do it, but it makes sense to put it in a refrigerator since we have that available to us now. You hang it up in a dry space. An air-conditioned room is great. If your humidity is low, if you live in, like, the desert or something like that where you have low humidity, you can do this outside, but it's safer inside, so why not do it inside? Uh, you hang it up so that it doesn't touch other pieces of it, And you let it dry out. And that's pretty much it. And there's shows about Biltong. You can search Biltong on the uh, site and get more instruction than that. But I want you to know what, the, what it is. It almost looks mummified. It, it's, if you hand a person a piece that, know, that they know Biltong, they're going to see it as different from jerky like that fast. And even somebody knows jerky going to be like, this doesn't really look like jerky. It doesn't really cure quite like jerky. A big, thick, heavy piece of it is actually lighter than visually you would expect it to be. So if I took a bundle of beef jerky, all bundled together, the same thickness of a similar size piece of biltong, the biltong's going to weigh less, believe it or not. And um, how do you store it? Any way you want. It's not. Here's the thing about biltong. It will continue to dry out for as long as you let it. So it comes down to personal taste. Do you like it a little bit moist or damp in the center? And if so, you need to halt the drying process. Anything that separates it from oxygen and air will do that. So a Ziploc bag, a well-filled uh, jar, a Tupperware bin. I generally, um, well, first of all, I hide my biltong somewhere where people can't find it because people try to steal it. That's how good biltong is. So Generally, I eat it under a blanket with a flashlight at night uh, at 3 a.m. so that nobody finds out that I have it. I'm, I'm, I'm teasing, but I'm not. It is uh, it is something that when people find out you have it and taste it, uh, they don't go away till it's gone. Um, but I generally take my biltong and put it into um, decent-sized bundles inside of Ziploc bags, and I push the air out and zip that up and roll it up. And then I generally store those in bundles inside a uh, Tupperware bin. You could just throw it all in a Tupperware bin. So why do I put it in bags? So that I don't eat all my own biltong too fast. That way if I go to take some out, I take out a prepackaged bundle, put the, the bin away, and I try to keep it somewhere where it's not real convenient, like at the bottom of another bin full of stuff, just so it's more of a pain in the ass to get out so it sticks around a little bit longer. Um, it's an addictive substance. And I, I, my understanding is half the nation of South Africa is addicted to it or more. I learned about it originally from a guy named Peter Hathaway Capstick, and if you haven't read some of his books like Death in a Lonely Land and Death in the Long Grass, and if you're a, a hunter and if your heart aches for kind of the, the, the old days of Africa, he was kind of the last generation of professional hunters that really knew a little bit of what old Africa was like, the Africa of Robert Rourke and further back Ernest Hemingway. And he tells a story in one of his books, and it's about 
finding some biltong that had been in a bag wrapped in some foil loosely for about 15 years. And he said other than being a little bit dry, it was still quite good. So that tells you the longevity of biltong. So it's a great product to know how to make. It's something you should experiment with. It takes a little while to learn how much salt is too much salt. The biggest question, uh, complaint I get from people is, I use too much salt on the first batch. Go easy. Go easy. I like to use a thicker salt, a coarse salt, like um, like uh, like pickling salt, or uh, not really pickling salt, but like sea salt that comes in the... The, the cans, you know, that are a couple bucks, that it's thicker. It's easier to see how much you've gotten on there. And when you go, when you go to hang it up, you can knock any of the excess salt off. Don't cake it. Just make sure it gets some salt all around it. Kind of do it almost like you're salting a pretzel, a little bit heavier than you would salt a big soft pretzel. And I think you'll get better results. Realize that the big coarse pieces of salt, when they come in contact with the moisture of the meat, they begin to dissolve and the meat will take the salt up. And what happens then is when you hang it, as it dehydrates, the salt molecules take space that would normally be reserved by water molecules. I also had a question recently about can you, you know, do other things to flavor your biltong? Can you use, you can do anything you want, but you gotta have salt, you gotta have vinegar. First step, spray it lightly with apple cider vinegar. Uh, I left that one out of the instructions. So store it any way you like. If you want to keep it from completely drying out, you want to do something to separate it from air and definitely hide it and protect it from your friends because they will eat it all on you. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack, this is John in West Virginia. Uh, had a rude awakening the other day. I'm going through a divorce with my ex-wife, and her being vindictive as she is, uh, cut off my water. I'm a long-time prepper, had food, water, and all that stored up. But I realized when my water was cut off, and we're in quite a drought around here, how under-prepared I was with my water situation. And I've also been doing a little bit of an experiment on living just what I had in the regular cabinets, not what I had in my preps. Uh, love show, man. Uh, thank you. Oh, well, ain't that nice. Um, uh, dude, I, first of all, I'm sorry that you're in a divorce that's going that way. A divorce has dad gone hard enough on a person. And I'd like to talk just briefly, if I could, uh, a little bit outside of, I guess, the intended subject here. Uh, about why people do shit like this in a divorce. Here's what happens. When a person's getting a divorce, even if they, even if they want to be divorced, even if they're the one that initiated divorce, um, being with someone that you loved enough to marry feels a part of you. And no matter how angry you are, no matter how upset you are, there's a piece of you that will always love that other person. And when you separate from them and it has a permanence to it like divorce, there's a pain. And it's a huge, horrible pain. And the easiest short-term fix, it's kind of like a drug, is to replace the pain with anger and vindictiveness. And if you don't have any kids, it's it's adults, and you know, hopefully if you're on the other side of it, you can just let the stuff roll off your back and put your life back together and roll on uh, and deal with the pain instead of throwing anger back at it, because that'll just fuel the situation and make it worse. If you're getting divorced, don't do stupid shit like that. Don't turn off your spouse's water. There's there's still a person that at one time in your life you cared about, even if they've done something horribly wrong. You know, here's the thing about stuff like that. I believe in karma, and I think karma is the greatest thing in the world if you're good to people. And if you're an asshole, karma is a bitch. It will come back and bitch slap you in the head sooner or later. And 
have some solace in knowing that that karma will come back on the other side of this. First things first, man, hopefully you can wait for my advice because this came in like two weeks ago. Um, get on the horn with your local water company and give them some money and get your water turned back on and get that put in your name. Let them know the structure's occupied and they pretty much have to turn it back on right away. Most townships and cities and things like that, as long as the bill has been paid, uh, even if the person on the thing says to shut it off, they're not supposed to shut the water off. As long as there's someone still occupying the, the residence legally, uh, they can contact you and ask you to get your name on it and then shut it off if you refuse. Um, so they're really not even supposed to do that. She probably lied to him and said everybody moved out shut it off. Um, that's sad, but get it back on. Second, I think maybe, you know, here's what I want to point out. Here's what this guy's doing. He's not getting there all moping around about this. And it could have been a, a scorned ex-wife or it could have been a natural disaster. He's taking the opportunity to learn. Instead of going into his preps right away, he's seeing how long he can get by with the stuff that he keeps just in the pantry and things like that. And I bet he's found a lot of holes. I bet he's found a lot of holes in his planning, and he's filling them up. And I think that's a great thing to do. Well, my wife and I were up in Arkansas this winter. The power went out. It was seven degrees, and the power went out. We have electric heat up there. And we sat back, and we kicked the fire up. And I, I didn't even go turn the generator on. We just uh, made a camp out in the living room and, and, and really stoked the fire and threw some good hardwood on there. And we sat down and cranked up the hand crank radio, the Grundig, and we uh, listened to a, a radio show about ghosts, which was kind of neat. I mean, you got to admit, that was kind of cool that that was on. And we sat there and said, what, what are, you know, this is our bug out location. What are we lacking right now of a convenience item? And we made a list of some things we needed and we used the opportunity. That's what this guy's doing. That's great. So, uh, you know, sorry to hear about it, man, but, uh, but I guess there's a lesson there. Don't underestimate your water needs. We're hearing a lot on water today, aren't we? Water and sewage and things like that. I told you, you guys, your calls always sync up with each other. I think the universe knows what it's doing, man. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. First year gardener and calling because my tomatoes, um, which are in a pot, they look red, they look ripe, but when I cut them open, the whole top half tends to be white, uh, a little bit of green and white. Um, trying to find out what's wrong. Today we were looking at like a plant catalog and it said that it could be that there was phosphate related. Is that the case? Do I need more phosphate in my soil? Um, just thought I'd ask you and maybe you can, uh, shed some light on what's going on with my tomatoes. Thanks, Jack. Well, we got a couple things that could be going on there. One, it's, it's easy for, um, tomato plant to be deficient in phosphorus. Tomatoes and potatoes are what we call a high phosphorus feeder. And one of the things that really can aid that organically is, Burying a few leaves of uh, comfrey, maybe a good handful of comfrey leaves, right in the ground when you plant your tomato plants. That'll be a great source of phosphorus. Uh, when you plant potatoes, one of the things you can do is actually wrap them in comfrey leaves uh, when you plant them, and that's a good phosphorus source. So that could be, and that could help, but usually if a tomato plant is phosphorus deficient, um, it shows in another way. Usually you get kind of a bluish discoloration of your leaves. If your plant is big and vibrant and green and healthy, uh, odds are it's not phosphorus deficient. If you, if you planted it in a, uh, a garden pot, odds are you used a good quality potting soil. It's probably got a lot of organic matter. And for the first season anyway, it's probably good to go. By the way, with tomatoes, potatoes, anything like that, if you use the soil in the pot this year for tomatoes, if you're going to grow tomatoes in that pot again next year, 
dump it out, put that dirt somewhere else, clean out the pot with bleach, and put brand new soil into it next year to help with tomato diseases like blight. Um, I'm going to tell you, though, that I think it may be that your fruit's not fully ripened yet. And what you might want to try doing is take those tomatoes that you're picking that you think are fully ripe, set them in a sunny, sunny window off the vine for like a full day, and take a look at them then. The other thing is there might be nothing wrong with them. My next question would be if I had you on the line live, when you cut them open, part of them's kind of white and greenish on the inside. How do they taste? If they taste good, there ain't nothing wrong. Usually if a tomato has a nutrient deficiency, you see things like calcium deficiency causing blossom end rot, the tomato's not fully developing. I've really not seen this as a problem. I've seen tomatoes. My next question would be what variety of tomato are they? Uh, there are some varieties of tomatoes that are going to, the top part's going to stay green well into their ripen stage, and they're going to have kind of a whitish look to them. As long as it's just not completely solid red. I mean, you may be growing an heirloom variety of tomato that has a better flavor than what you're used to in the store, but it's not made for the consumer market, so it's not going to be perfect. From a color palette standpoint, you know, absolutely uniform color all the way through, made for long-term storage and shipping in boxes. It's not something that was picked green and then ripened by exposing it to ethylene gas, right? It is a real, honest-to-God, normal tomato. If it tastes good, don't worry about it. If it tastes good and the plant is healthy, Don't worry about it. If you want to see if a little more ripening time will work out for you, when you pick a tomato and it's off the vine and it's exposed to solar radiation, its uh, ripening process accelerates. So take one of your tomatoes, set it in that sunny window or outside where it gets some sun but not too much direct sun, give it 24 hours after it's picked, slice it down and see if it's redder inside. If that's the case, it's just a ripening timeline. And the other thing is if you want to follow up with an email to me and let me know what variety of tomato these are, it may be that that's just how this tomato looks. Uh, there's tomatoes that are actually white. There's tomatoes that are yellow. There's tomatoes that are green and striped. There's all different colors and varieties and patterns within a tomato that are perfectly acceptable and natural. Big thing is how do they taste. I bet they taste better once you get in the store. Thanks for that question. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Bill. I recently started listening to your show. I have a uh, room in my house on the first floor that I'm going to uh, be redoing soon, and uh, it's over a crawl space. So the thing about doing is actually open up the floor and using it uh, for storage into the crawl space. Um, I'll enclose it and uh, insulate it and make it uh, watertight, basically, so that moisture doesn't get into it. Uh, so I can use it for food storage and uh, ammo and gun storage, things like that. Watch out if there's anything else I should be thinking about um, while doing a room, basically, over. It's going to be used as a guest room. Uh, in the end, uh, slash office, but I also want to be able to make use of the uh, climate-controlled area of basically the uh, the crawl space. So I just want to know if you had any suggestions or uh, any ideas. All right, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Well, um, interesting. Sounds like you have a, a pretty good plan, and I don't have a lot to add. I have a few thoughts. First thing I'm going to say is make sure you pay a hell of a lot of attention to accessibility. You're going to want to have multiple ways to get in and, and make sure that you can get stuff in and get stuff out of there. Um, so you want to make sure there's more than one way to get into the, the space, whether it's a true crawl space that you're going to be able to physically get down there and move around in or simply a hollow spot you're going to have to lift something up directly above it and be able to reach in and maybe a little bit to the side left and right. Make sure you have multiple access points. 
in spite of the fact you want multiple access points and you want it easy to get in, hey, you know, you've got an opportunity here to do something kind of cool, so don't make it obvious. Try to hide the fact that it exists in the first place. You're probably going to do that anyway. My, my biggest concern is that in any kind of underfloor space, uh, no matter what you do, you run a real potential for rodent infestation. So any type of food that goes down there needs to be packed in something rodent-proof, which pretty much means metallic, right? I mean, if it's one thing you have a bin, but then everything inside of it needs to be in, in some type of metal protection uh, thing. Anything that would be really attractive to a rodent for the purpose of making bedding, like blankets or uh, pillowcases or pillows or sleeping bags or anything that the little, I'm not going to say it, would like to chew up into little you know, strips and make a bed out of, you're going to want to protect those in at least some type of a hard plastic, hard rubber. You're not likely to see a mouse waste its time burrowing into and chewing through Rubbermaid if there's no smell of anything food-like in there. Uh, but if there's food in there, they will smell it. They will chew through it. So anything highly susceptible to rodents, you're going to want to keep out of there. Um, some people would be worried with the ammunition if there were a fire. It's probably better off in the floor than anywhere else in the house, though. The concept of ammunition firing and bullets flying all over the place, that's been on Mythbusters. It doesn't happen without the ammunition being contained uh, in a, a rifle or a pistol breech. Uh, you don't get a bunch of projectile. You do have a, a hazard, an explosive hazard, but not in like bullets flying all over the place like somebody's firing guns. just doesn't happen that way that the uh, the brass ruptures first, so it's, it's not a risk with that. Um, Local building codes, making sure you're compliant without asking permission. It's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. It would be a good idea for you to uh, to find out if there are any codes or things or ordinances that affect you. Do your best to comply. Since this is a project that's going on inside your house, I personally would not involve my city inspector or what have you. I'd just keep my mouth shut and do it. And as far as I know, it was always that way. Um, because every time you involve government when you don't have to, it's like asking to be punched in the face. Uh, if you live in an area where people are sticklers on a buy, you know, buying a house, and when you sell it, it might come up, was there a permit pulled for this? Then maybe you need to do it. But that's not the case most of the time, unless you're in some nut job area like Southern California, right? Um, th those are the only things I can think of. I like the idea, though. And I'd like to see more people do something to this effect. I'd love to see pictures of it in the forum when you're done with it, how you did it. Uh, it sounds like a great article for SaveOurSkills.com, which is about to go undergo a major transformation and become a very active place. So that would be cool if you, you know, even with someone staying anonymous and all, if you maybe want to share with how you did that, we'd love to see it. Um, I do worry a little bit, you know, how are you going to make sure that it's watertight and things like that? Make sure that the biggest thing you can do is whatever you're storing down there, store it within storage. So even if it's uh, metal cans that you're storing with food, put them in a Rubbermaid tub. Uh, if it's a, it's a, 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 you know, again, if it's a, a sleeping bag, put it in some kind of additional storage medium so that things aren't down there loose. It'll be easier to get out, be easier to go mobile with it if you have to, and provide some extra protection. Keep an eye on it, and if you have a problem or a deficiency, correct it as you go. So again, leave lots of access to the area, because without that, if there is a problem fixing, it's going to be hard. You end up tearing up the floor you put all the work into. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another question. 
Hey Zach, how's it going? This is uh, Spooky One from the forums. I have a question concerning growing uh, prickly pear cactus fruit. I'm not sure if you know what they are. They're grown in desert regions. It's the red fruit from the paddle cactus. I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I wanted to know if I could grow those, and if I can, where do I get like the seed, or do I have to get an established paddle cactus already? If you can lead me in the right direction, that'd be great. Keep up the great work. First, oh yes, I am familiar with prickly pear cactus fruit. Let me tell you how my love affair with this little odd creation began. Many years ago, when I first got into homebrewing, it would have been about 1994, I got a copy of a dog-eared old copy of The Complete Joy of Homebrewing when uh, a good friend of mine gave me some carboys and other homebrewing equipment as a gift because uh, he had gotten to a point where he wasn't drinking anymore, so he wasn't obviously going to be making beer anymore. In that book, there was a recipe for mead, and I had never heard of mead until the day that book hit my hands, and there was a recipe for something called Barshack Ginger Mead, which was pretty damn awesome, but there was another recipe for prickly pear cactus mead, which uses uh, mesquite honey and prickly pear cactus fruit, uh, and that's pretty much all the ingredients. You can kind of take it from there. And uh, this has to age for at least a year after the, it, it's uh, it's bottled. I mean, this is something you take a two-year process to make. It's real high-gravity mead. It is absolutely one of the most amazing things I've ever drank in my life. And from there, I wanted to know what else could you do with these little uh, cactus fruits. And I've since tried things like jelly that was made from jalapenos and prickly pear cactus fruit. Uh, which is great on like meat dishes and all. It's amazing. And I like eating them uh, just as they are. Uh, when Brian and I were out at uh, uh, Big Ben for his camo comparison, we ate a lot of them. Uh, if you wait long enough, if you look at these fruits as they turn red, they'll get red to where you can eat them. They still have these little black hairs all over them, and you want to be real careful. Those little hairs will get in your fingers. It's almost impossible to get out. You're going to basically have them in there for a few days until they work themselves out. Um But when they stay on the cactus long enough, they go to a deep burgundy mauve, almost black-looking color to them. And that's when they're at their sweetest, and all those little hairs fall off. And you can pretty much just pick them and eat them at that point. They have kind of um, the outer pulp's kind of a tart pulp that doesn't really taste similar to anything else. It is its own thing. It's good, but it's, it's a tartness. The seeds inside the fruit are surrounded by a liquid that is kind of watermelon-ish. So it's almost like a sweet and sour watermelon flavor, and it's pretty daggone awesome. And I just pretty much cut them, slice them, and eat them, and kind of spit the seeds out. If you want to grow your own, there's a couple ways you can do it. You can go buy them and plant them, and that's probably the easiest, most reliable way to do it. You can take those fruits and extract the seeds and start seed. That's how the cactus naturally reproduces, one way that it naturally reproduces. Another thing you can do, and you have to be careful when you do this, because you might take them from a place that's considered uh, not acceptable. Like if you went and did this in Big Ben, you'd probably have the park rangers coming after you. Uh, those, uh, those guys are really some Keystone cops out there, at least one of the guys was. The other guy was pretty cool, but the one guy just shook my head. Um, And you probably can't take this from Big Ben, but there's probably plenty of ranchers out there and, and areas you could do this where no one would care if you took a few cactus paddles. If you take, and you really want to wear good heavy leather gloves to do this, and kind of grab the cactus paddle where you get your fingers in between the needles, and take a sharp knife and cut that paddle off where it attaches to the next paddle down, and use some rooting hormone and put that on there, and put that cactus paddle directly into some growth medium, 
uh, for a little while, you can get it to root, and it'll start, and it'll grow a completely new cactus. So basically, you can just go out and get your own pieces of cactus and clone new ones. That's going to be much faster than going from a seed. Uh, but they are sold in a lot of places. And uh, the nice thing about them is once you establish a couple stands of them, they're pretty well bulletproof. Not a lot of things eat them. Desert tortoise eat them and, and a few other things. But most things don't necessarily eat the cactus itself, uh, though the paddles are edible. They, I don't like the paddles. Um, they're kind of slimy and gooey, and I, I'm not real fond of the paddles. Um, but the fruits are excellent. And, uh, you know, one good stand of them will grow and produce for you over and over and over again. Albuquerque, you should have no problem growing them. If you were up near, you know, north of there, up in like Taos or Angel Fire or something like that, where it gets really cold, uh, you might have some problems. They're actually quite cold hardy, but they do have to have warm parts of the year to grow, to mature, and for the fruit to ripen. So Albuquerque, you should have really any problem with that. You do want to give them a lot of solar exposure, and you don't want their root systems to get too wet. They will rot out. I remember a friend of mine's wife killed a cactus. It wasn't one of those, but it was a different kind of cactus one time uh, by overwatering it. And he took it to this little Chinese man at a nursery and wanted to know, is it still alive? Is there anything I could do to it? And the guy was a huge, beautiful cactus, and she had she'd killed it by overwatering it. And this poor little Asian man was, like, upset over it. I mean, because he knew how old this was to be this big. And he's going through and pulling it, look for any part of it that's left alive. He's going, oh, no, you kill it, you kill it. There's only one way. He kept going, there's only one way to kill it, and you killed it, you know? Like, it, it actually hurt this guy's heart that this, this cactus had been killed because uh, it was huge for the variety. So that's about the only way you're going to kill a cactus is too much moisture. They do like water, and they do need water to grow. They don't grow in you know complete dry environments. What they're very good at is taking up water and, and, and allowing it to drain away and using it for a long time, becoming a water storage device. So they're not something you don't water, but you don't want them in the conventional soil that you garden in that, that stays wet. Uh, you need a good sandy, gravelly soil for them. Uh, it shouldn't be a problem where you live if you need to do some improvements, though. Basically, instead of improving for a garden, you're kind of a de-improving uh, environment for your cactus. But give them a shot. They're pretty damn bulletproof. And uh, those fruits are badass, folks, if you've never tried one. I know it sounds a little bit funny uh, to be eating cactus fruit, but... Uh, Give it a shot. I'll tell you, you might be really surprised. You really want them fully ripe. The riper they are, the better that they taste. Uh, and the seeds are quite hard, just so you know when you go to bite into one. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack. Uh, this is Mike the Blacksmith from Spring Thing. Uh, I just wanted to sincerely thank you for the kind words on the show a few weeks ago. Uh, it really meant a lot to me to know that uh, somebody thought so highly of me and uh, I just wanted to thank you for that. Um, as you mentioned, I will be going to school here pretty soon, which, coincidentally enough, will make us uh, pretty near to neighbors. I'll just be a few little towns over. Um, my question is, uh, I'm moving into an apartment with a good friend of mine, my roommate. Um, it's actually a home apartment. There's going to be very, very little storage space. Uh, which you actually touched on a few weeks ago. Um, but I, as I'm sure many college students uh, can relate to, really don't know exactly where I'll be in a year. Something may, better may come along, and I could move. Um, so I was wondering if maybe you could have uh, some tips on keeping your preps uh, easily mobile. Um 
because honestly there's some of us out there that don't know exactly where we're going to be living in a few months or a year so uh, if you could hit on that that'd be great uh, thanks for doing what you're doing and keep it up thank you first of all folks if you want some faith in our youth that young man right there is 19 years old and uh, what he was doing down at spring thing is uh, he's like you said he's a blacksmith and he was out there teaching people a trade and he's concerned with his preps, and he's concerned with his nation, and he's concerned with his future. Don't doubt our youth, folks. Um, on your question, Mike, um, I'll tell you what. Um, the first thing you can do is store as much as you possibly can permanently in your vehicle. Everything other than mostly food, maybe a little bit of MRE and stuff like that. But you know, the heat down here in Texas, especially, uh, is going to play hell on your storage life. So even if you're storing stuff like MREs or freeze dried Mountain House, you're going to want to use that stuff about once a year. So you want to store maybe three to three to ten days maximum in the vehicle. But at least it's there. The more you store in the vehicle, the more mobile it is. Probably the most popular pickup for young men in, or most popular tr uh, vehicle for a young men in Texas is a pickup truck. Um, if you have a pickup truck and you put one of those deep um, toolboxes, uh, you know, attached to the truck securely, locked up in the back of your truck, you create an amazing amount of storage space for yourself where you can store a lot of things uh, for anything that is not a, uh, again, a consumable. So things like camping gear and, and emergency radios, communications equipment. Store as much as that as you can maybe in a pickup toolbox. If you have a vehicle, maybe in your trunk. So that's a, so it's already mobile because it's in your vehicle. Um, then the other side of things is since you have limited storage space, you're not going to have too much problem staying mobile now, are you? Because you can only store so much. Um, so I guess there's a, it's a plus and minus. You don't have a lot of stuff. But it's going to pack pretty easily because you can only store so much of it in the first place. Keeping it in bags and bins ready to go is a good idea for anybody, not just somebody with limited space. The more limited your space, the more important being organized is. I'll, I'll reiterate the advice I gave last time I talked on this. Get some of the things that lift your bed up. They're available at like Walmart and Target. They're everywhere right now because right I want to sell them to college students like you. Lift that bed up. Get yourself some of the shallow Rubbermaid, long shallow Rubbermaid bins. Put all your stuff in there neatly organized. Label the ends so you can see what they are as you're pulling them out so you don't have to drag them all out to get what you want. If you need something, do as much storage as you can under your bed. A kind of a, a, a blow-it-out type solution would be to get a small storage space, keep trailer in there, load it up with everything else that you could possibly need if you had to get out of Dodge. That adds an expense. College students aren't known for being really rich guys, right? Uh, your young guy just starting out, so that might be cost prohibitive, but... I don't know if you have a roommate that's a good friend. It might be something you go in on. Uh, you can probably get a storage space big enough to put a small trailer in for about 50 bucks a month. That buys a lot of beer when you're in college, though. So, I mean, that's uh, that's kind of an extra above and beyond thing, right? So, it's up to you what you want to do there. But, I mean, those are the best advice that I can give you short term. Thanks for calling in, Mike. And, again, man, I, I appreciate you, uh, the fact that you... Uh, that you're a young guy and you've already got a lot of this stuff figured out. Make sure you tell your friends about it. They'll listen to you before they're going to listen to me. Let's go ahead and take our last question. This is going to be one that's, uh, I think a lot of people are going to learn a lot from this one. Hi, Jack. I love your program. I am, uh, not a member of your, a membership brigade, uh, program, uh, which I feel very guilty about, to be honest with you, because I've gained so much knowledge 
uh, from you, and I'm so much further along in the road to preparedness, but I, uh, I am to the point where I can't stand, uh, uh, even my family, friends, or business associates anymore. I have one or two friends that, uh, understand our, our, uh, where our country is going, and, uh, I am actively looking for acreage to set up a homestead. Um, I'm divorced with two children, and they're 13 and 18 years old, and uh, I just feel like I can't be a dad or a business partner anymore. Uh, I don't have um, any debt, and uh, I could buy land and, and build and set up a homestead with cash. Uh, I know there's many people in my situation, and uh, they don't know what to do, just like I don't know what to do. Um, uh, thanks to you, I have, uh, you know, storage food and uh, many other preps. Uh, uh, but I still feel lost. Um, I'm to the point where I'm uh, ready to abandon everything and start my homestead. Uh, um, I guess I'm, uh, I'm looking to you for advice on this matter. If you don't... Uh, want to address this on your your podcast i understand uh um i promise uh to join your group and and i would also you know be happy to donate some cash to uh, you and your if uh you had a donate button on your website which you know what nah, it's a hard thing to accept but i would do it if i were you because there's people that believe in you like me that don't want to necessarily join your brigade but uh, benefit from all your advice because um, you're 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 good. Anyway, um... well, folks, um, I'm going to ask you to do something. I know a lot of people, you know, cut the grass, uh, garden work, whatever. When uh, they listen to the show, but I'm going to say that I think that the average person and not the, the most people out there need to hear this. So I'm going to ask that you maybe for the next ten minutes uh, really listen. Uh, to everything I have to say, because I think I'm going to be able to help a lot of people here. Uh, this is a two-part question. I'm going to be really quick with the first part of it. One, I don't want, and I've been wanting to say this, so the universe delivers what we need when we need it. Um, I don't want anybody to ever feel guilty ever, 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 in any circumstance ever for not joining the Members Brigade and financially co contributing to the show. Please do not. Uh, you don't, I'm going to give you every bit of advice I can today, sir, because I admire you, and I'll tell you why in a second. You don't need to be a member to get answers from me. I don't sell content to the show. Recently, I've had a couple people accuse me of, you know, selling answers and selling the good stuff and holding back the good stuff. And I don't know where the hell these people are coming from. Um, the show is free. It will always be free. And I don't, if you call in with a question and I can help you, I give you an answer and I don't give anybody preference in that order. I don't say, okay, this guy's MSB, so he gets preference and this guy isn't, so he doesn't. Um, every single person that, that honors me by listening to this show matters to me. And uh, the one thing that will get me fighting mad is to, for someone to say that the only reason I do this is so I can make a buck. Uh, I do make my living from it. I don't apologize for it. My business is successful. I do not apologize for it. If you do good things and you do the right things and you take care of people, and this guy just said he believes in me, well, I believe in all of you. And when you do that with your customers, um, you end up with a successful business. There's people that just don't want to do things 
as far as you know, like this guy said, give me money the way that I the way that I ask for it, the way that I do business. There's people that can't. There's people that are in debt. There's people that don't feel right. You know, they just don't want that. I don't have any problem with it. I don't want anybody to feel guilty when I say if you're getting 20 cents worth of value, consider joining the brigade. That's my sales pitch to you. It's not guilt. Never see it that way. Don't worry. The the, do- the donation thing, I won't do it. I won't do it. I want people to know something. I don't know if I've ever told you guys this before, but when I was building this show before I had the MSB, there were several people that through one thing or another knew what my PayPal email address was because of like a an event or something and uh, sent me donations unsolicited. I sent them back every penny. The show is free. It will always be free. It is done for you because you deserve it. That's for everybody. All right? And I'm going to leave it at that. Now I'm going to tell that this is the important part. This is the part I need you to listen to. The reason I admire this gentleman who called in, because I hear pain in his voice, and it takes a hell of a lot of courage to be public with your pain. A lot. And because the question he's asking really isn't about other people, his individual situation in life, the real question is, I'm lost and I cannot find my way. And there's so many of us that are out there that feel that way. And lost isn't about other people. Lost is about us. And I want you all to listen to this as deeply as you can with an open mind because I'm going to pour out everything I know to say, everything I feel called to say when I hear someone who's in a point in their life and feels this way because I've been there. This is not about the fact that your family and your co-workers don't see things your way. It's about the fact that you're not sure where you want to go next. And when we start to look to ourselves for answers that we do not have, when we start to become dissatisfied with ourselves, it is easy to look around at ass clowns around us and project our anger onto others. People that are unsuccessful in business then project their anger on people that are successful in business and blame them for their failure. People that are unsuccessful in relationships look at people with a good relationship and project anger there. And we project anger all around us and pretty soon we convince ourselves that the other people are the problem, that we're not lost. You are on your way to the right path because you were able to say the words, I'm lost. That's one of the most courageous Uh, necessary, heroic, and manly things, and if you're a woman, womanly things that a person can ever do to admit I'm lost. This is what I feel you need to do. I could be wrong. This is what I feel you need to do. I feel you need to unplug temporarily from this situation. You need to find a cabin somewhere you can rent for two or two weeks or more, Or go rent a, you know, a little drivable RV for a couple weeks or more, and you need to get away from everything that's negative on you. You need to not take my show with you when you go, because it brings up a lot of the things that you're concerned about. Get yourself some good old fiction books, some things to entertain you, some funny movies and a DVD player, and books and a journal, and get the hell away from everything for a couple weeks. And I want you to go on a quest, and I think a lot of people listening to this, you really need to hear this. Please listen to me. You need to find someone. There's only one person that when you feel this way can fix it for you. And that's the 12-year-old kid inside of you. See, there's a, 
There's a piece of ourselves that we lose as we grow up and we, we decide we, we know what's best now and we have to put childish things away and dreams have to go into the past. And then we, 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 it's like an old friend you haven't talked to in a long time and you really should have and you didn't. The longer you go, the harder it gets to talk to him. You know what I mean. There's that friend you should call and you didn't call him and a year went by and now you really don't want to call him because you don't want to explain yourself and you're also wondering why didn't you talk to me? We start to feel that way about the 12 year old kid inside of us. And we also know we've turned our back on that kid. And then when we find him, on some levels, that little kid's going to kick our ass. He's going to ask us, what the hell's wrong with you? Don't you remember all the things that we dreamed about? I didn't work hard to grow up to turn into someone that forgot about what we, we were working for. What people need when you have this type of feeling in your life is to know what matters to you, what your passion in life is, the things that are really important. And there's seminal moments in our lives that help put us in touch with it. And don't be discouraged if you take this type of kind of a, an unplugging and you don't get an immediate answer. I'll tell you what did it for me was several years ago when my wife was in intensive care after her surgery and actually before she went into surgery and I had the real concept in my mind that I could lose her. It wasn't highly likely, but it was definitely possible. Brain surgery is a serious thing. And as I, you know, was with her as she was recovering and seeing her so weak and in pain and things like that, it caused me to question everything. And two weeks after we had her home and she was able to get up and go around and do things and she was off the, the, the anti-seizure medications that had suppressed the pain and she wasn't having clouded thoughts and she wasn't sick anymore and I had my wife back. Well, I thought to myself, everything you think is important is bullshit. I'd already learned 80% of the lesson, but I was holding on to the last 20% of it. And I wasn't talking to the 12-year-old Jack Spirico that grew up running around on shell banks with the 22 hunting crows. Dreaming of someday hunting in Africa, like the books that he read. Dreaming of someday standing on a beautiful stream bank casting a fly. And these are my dreams. They, they're, they're not yours. You have to find your own. But you have to pull yourself away from everything that's negative. And you have to talk to that 12-year-old little kid. And you have to let him beat up on you a little bit. Because he's going to do it because he's angry. But you have to find yourself. If you are walking through the woods and you are on a path that you believe goes somewhere, and eventually you realize that's not the path you thought it was, you don't know whether you're traveling north, south, east, or west because you can't see the sun because you're so shaded in by the forest. Two things happen. First, when you realize you're on the wrong path, you feel panic and you feel anxiety, and then it gets replaced with anger. It, there's an anger that starts to override. How could I be on the wrong path? And then eventually, you go to acceptance, and you realize you're lost and you don't know what to do. And it goes back to a mixture of anxiety and fear. But there's only one thing you can do in that 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 standpoint is to assess how you got there and start looking for the right path so you can get back home. This is exactly what happens to most people in their lives. And it's a big part of what it comes down to when we talk about survival. Survival is not just for when things go wrong. 
Survival is the way that we live so that we can thrive in our daily lives. And what happens is people, you have a path you belong on in your life. You came here to do something. You came here to become someone. You came here to do something, to be something, to impact others in some way, shape, or form. Finding it isn't easy, but I don't care what your religious, spiritual beliefs are or non-existent beliefs are. You don't need to, to, to convert to anything. You don't need to be a believer or a non-believer or anything like that to understand the concept that humans are here individually for a reason, a path that they belong on. And what happens is one day in your life, you wake up, And you realize, I don't know what path I'm supposed to be on. I just know I'm on the wrong one. And what happens? Anxiety and fear. And that leads us to anger. And all of a sudden we start projecting that anger on the people around us. And we just, in the words of this man, and I understand fully, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying this is how it happens. We feel, I can't stand these people. These people are idiots. They don't understand anything. And we start taking our anxiety and our fear and our anger, and we project it onto them. And we keep walking down the wrong path all while we're doing this, and the situation gets worse and worse and worse. And what do they teach you in wilderness survival when that is happening? You're going the wrong way, you don't know where you are, you're disoriented, what is the first thing you should do? Stop. Stop. Breathe. Think. Establish a base camp. Orient yourself. Determine where you are and start working back based on a true direction rather than panic, anger, and fear. If you stay with panic, anger, and fear, you get more and more lost. In the wilderness, we die, and in the real world, our souls die. So that's what I'm suggesting you do if you feel this way. Stop. Let the world do whatever the world's going to do for two weeks. It's going to happen. You can't stop it. You can't change it. All you can do is take care of yourself. Unplug in some way, shape, or form. Cut it all off. Cut the email off. Cut the news off. Cut the TV off. Live in a little bit of a world of fantasy. That'll help you reconnect with that kid you used to be. Find that kid. He's got the answers. And I'll tell you what, I don't have the answers. I have the answers for myself And I'm on a never-ending quest to keep finding the next answer, the new answer, where to go next, which way to step next. And I'll step off my path. We all will. I just try to be in tune with it. And when I feel it's wrong, when I look up and go, these are not the stars I'm supposed to be under, I try to correct my course. And that's what it takes. It takes a pause. It takes a stop. It's not a vacation. It's not going away with buddies and hunting. It's getting alone. Get away. If you're talking to anybody, let it be someone you've never spoken to before, a stranger that you've just met. And unplug. Be quiet. And listen. If you do that, you'll find yourself. And you will know where to go next. And you will know what to do next. Don't blame the people around you for not being aware of things that you're aware of. You weren't always aware of them either. People are all we have. Start internally. Find your internal compass, and that'll point you back onto your path. And a lot of the pain that people feel will go away. 
And that's the best I can do. And that's a tough question to answer on a show like this. I hope, I hope it helps a lot of people. Because if you can find yourself and you can find your true path, disaster or no disaster, problems or no problems, married or divorced, single or in a relationship, having children, not having children, you find your path and you'll find your passion and you'll find a sense of purpose. And when you find that, all the things that you need to do just begin to present themselves to you. You recognize them for what they are because you find out you're once again in familiar territory. With that, this has been Jack Spierko in another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.